The passage this morning is from Mark chapter 8. God's word says, He began to teach them at this point that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and to be killed. And after three days, rise again. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And he called to himself the crowd with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his life? What can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." This is God's word to his people. You may be seated. And as you're sitting, I would like to invite you to take your Bible out and turn it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. We are going to look a little bit more closely at that passage of Scripture that we just read together in our ongoing study of Mark's Gospel. As you're turning there, um, I want to invite you into a fun experience I had by way of getting into this. Uh, A couple of years ago, actually about a year and a half ago, I had my first backpacking experience. I want to show you a couple of pictures, each one I took myself. Uh, I've done a lot of hiking in my day, a lot of camping and a lot of fishing, but I haven't usually put them all together quite this way. This was my first experience. Fortunately, I was with guys that really knew what they were doing. Uh, Several guys, mostly from our church here, went to Wyoming for a week of backpacking in the mountains. So everything we lived on for five or six days, we carried on our backs. And there was a lot of this uh, on the trip, just gorgeous scenery. There was a lot of this. It was five days of fishing and hiking and seeing this kind of scenery. I got like 10 years worth of desktop wallpapers uh, for my computer in one week. It was awesome. It was awesome. And uh, this lake in particular, I love this shot because you can see it's as clear as a swimming pool. This lake is about 11,000 feet Uh, That's how high we were. That little uh, rock there is about eight feet deep, and then it dropped off down to about 30 or 40 feet deep. You could see all the way to the bottom. And uh, on this lake in particular, I just wanted to point out that um, I did outfish Kurt Free, Brent Lintz, Dave Armentrout, and Roger Hadley uh, all. I'm not bragging or nothing. That's just what happened. I don't... Just truth in storytelling. That's all this is. No, kidding. Actually, everybody did well at that lake. Not as well as me, but they did pretty well too. Um, so it was a great week of fishing and, and camping. Th- this was home for, for five days, right? Uh, it's amazing how much work it takes when you're actually living in the wilderness just to do basic things. Life in the wilderness is hard. And, you know, when you go there for short periods of time like we did, it's one thing. It's a lot of fun. It's kind of getting away from the city. It's getting out and enjoying the beauty of nature. And we all had a great time doing that. But, you know, 
when you go away for like five or six days and you have weeks and weeks and weeks to prepare yourself for that short little stay in the wilderness, and, you know, of course, you go in the best of conditions. You go in the summertime when it's nice and it's relatively warm and pleasant and mild. You know, when you do that, it's fun. But I got to tell you, I wouldn't want to live out there. Definitely not year-round, if you even could. Because to be honest, from the brutal winter cold to the lack of basic necessities, I mean, we were miles away from nothing out there. And if a serious problem develops, you're just in trouble. You're on your own. In an environment like that, just surviving there long-term would be incredibly difficult. And if you were able to do so, I can just about guarantee you it would be enormously uncomfortable. Uh, Visiting the wilderness is fun when you get to come back out. In fact, the best part of going to the wilderness was coming back out of the wilderness, you know? I loved being up there, but I got to tell you, that first shower after six days of sleeping on the ground and smelling like I'd been sleeping on the ground for six days, it's like heaven. It's like heaven on earth. And coming back home to my people, I mean, I left my family for a week and a half, and, and, and my home and my bed, it was just glorious to get out of the wilderness. It was almost as good as going in, in the first place. Life in the wilderness is hard. And I think this is a fitting picture for where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark, here at the end of chapter 8, because today we begin the fourth section of Mark's Gospel. Uh, You'll recall, those of you who were with us when we started this series back in October, that Mark divides his Gospel into six very clear sections. We've been through three of them. We're now at about the halfway point, and we are starting the fourth section. And this is the major turning point in the entire book. In fact, to be honest, this section this morning, this fourth section, is the one I've really been waiting for. Everything else so far has been warm-up. It's like, I hope you've enjoyed the sermons, but we've just been practicing. This is the real stuff. This is actually the section, these next couple of chapters are the section that led me to the conviction that we needed to teach this book at our church in the first place. So what is section four all about? Just quickly, what we're looking at in Mark's gospel here, section four, we're talking about the last uh, part of chapter eight, where we're starting this morning, uh, as well as chapters nine and ten. Okay, so that's section four, about two and a half chapters of this 16-chapter book. Now, in these uh, two and a half chapters, what's going on with the narrative? Well, Jesus leaves Galilee, and he heads south toward Jerusalem. Up until this point, Mark's gospel has been a record of Jesus and his disciples and their ministry in Galilee, which is sort of up north of Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is from, and he spent all his time there. At this point, he turns, they start heading south for the first time to Jerusalem. And of course, as the readers, we know what that means. Jesus is marching to his death. He knows that too. His disciples are yet to figure that out. And that's really kind of the the theme of what's going on here. Uh, The focus of Jesus' teaching also shifts. It's not just a geographical change that they move from north down to Jerusalem, but the focus of Jesus' teaching throughout this section changes dramatically. Previously, his uh, message to his disciples was focused on his identity, on his identity. Who is Jesus? Is he God's Messiah? And his answer to that is, yes, that's who I am. That was what the focus was on before. And now the focus shifts from who Jesus is to what Jesus does. That's the message that Jesus is trying to give his disciples. They know he is the Savior, but they don't know how he's going to save them from their sins. He's going to save them from their sins by means of his own death. He understands that. They're going to have to come to grips with it. And that really brings us to the main thing, the theme of this whole section. 
The theme is, in a phrase, the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. Over and over and over again for the next couple of chapters, we're going to see Jesus teaching, especially his closest followers, that not only is he going to have to suffer and die to accomplish his mission, but that much to their shock, and frankly, they're not terribly happy about it at first, he tells them he's sending them out on a similar mission. To follow him means to deal with various forms of suffering and various forms of dying to continue his mission. And and just a brief word before we dive into the text on why this matters now, why I felt so drawn for this as we thought and prayed through whether or not we should study Mark's gospel together as a church. It's because it's a message that I think gospel-centered churches in America need to hear right now desperately. And so if I could, for just a moment, maybe especially address this next comment to those of you who are members of our church. If you're not a Christian with us this morning, we're thrilled that you're here. We hope that you'll be uh, encouraged as you meet people and, and to just look at the word of God with us and see how it is that we as a family of God are trying to follow it. But for those of us who are members of this church and we've committed to following Christ, let me say this. I believe very firmly that our past as a church, as people, has not prepared us for our present or our immediate future because things are changing in our society and in our culture. Our past has not prepared us for our immediate future, but Jesus will if we let him. And that's what he's doing with his disciples here. That's what he wants to do with us. We'll come back to that point a little bit later this morning. Let's dive right in to uh, Mark chapter 8, starting in, actually, we'll back up to verse 27. That's kind of where we ended last week. Uh, Jesus went uh, with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, that's still up in Galilee. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? So the identity question. They say, well, some say John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. That's another word for Messiah. You're the Savior God had promised in the Old Testament to send. That's who we say you are, says Peter, speaking for the whole group. Now, that's a key turning point in each one of what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. At this point in each of those gospels, when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, things change, and Jesus heads off to Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting to note that this is not really a new perspective for the disciples, It's not like Peter just suddenly figured out in chapter 8 that Jesus was the Messiah. He and the other disciples had been following him because they already believed he was the Messiah. So it's not, when he says that, that it's like a new revelation for Peter or an aha moment for him. As much as though it serves as a turning point in the book. Remember from last Sunday, what immediately preceded Peter's announcement to Jesus that you are the Messiah was this two-stage healing miracle Jesus did, where he took a blind man and he restored his sight partially, so the guy could went from not being able to see to being able to see, but everything was fuzzy and blurry, and then in a second step, he made him see fully and clearly. And in many ways, this is the position the disciples, and we as readers who are following along with this, this is the position the disciples found themselves in. We know, we believe, they said to Jesus, that you are the Messiah. That's why we followed you. That's why we've left everything to follow you. So we see Jesus clearly, right? Well, not really. You see Jesus accurately as far as you see him, 
but you guys don't see him fully yet. You know that he's going to save you from your sins, but you don't yet know how. And at this point, Jesus is going to start now the second stage of opening their eyes, as it were. Yeah, you've got my identity down. Now I'm going to tell you what my mission is and the fact that it's going to have implications for your life as well. At this point, there's a huge turnaround because in our passage this morning, starting at verse 31 of chapter 8, Jesus begins plainly speaking of his mission and his suffering and his death. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's an Old Testament title that he's applying to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by, and here Mark lists essentially all of the Jewish religious leaders and their offices, the scribes, the chief priests, uh, and, and be killed, and then on the third day rise again. And he said this plainly. At this point, what really changes is Jesus says, good, I'm glad you're finally established and settled on the identity question. You believe that I'm the Messiah. Now let me tell you how I'm going to save you from your sins. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm actually going to die kind of ugly. It's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad, and you've got to understand this. And Peter freaks out a little bit, to say the least. The language is actually really strong in verse uh, 32. Uh, Jesus told them this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Modern transliteration, Peter got in his face. Peter pulls Jesus aside and he says, dude, no offense, are you out of your mind? What are you talking about? Stop this. Peter starts taking Jesus to the woodshed and says, you can't talk this way. Now, that's pretty brash. If you know anything about Peter, he's a pretty brash and bold guy. But boy, I mean, even for him, that seems a little over the top. He just said, you are the son of God, and then he feels free to go take him up behind the woodshed? I mean, what in the world is going on here? What Peter is, is so strong, it's because he's operating on an Old Testament view of God's kingdom program. Now, we need to back up for just a moment. Briefly, I want to explain something about how the Old Testament in particular and the whole Bible, both Old and New Testament, talk about prophecy. That is, what God is going to do in the future to accomplish the redemption of his people. If we understand just a basic working knowledge of it, it will not only explain this passage really well, but it will actually help you understand everything else you read, particularly in the Old Testament and a lot of the New Testament, about prophecy. Basically, it starts with the Old Testament prophets having said for centuries that God would send the Messiah, the Savior, on the day of the Lord. That's the phrase you hear over and over again in the Old Testament prophets. The day of the Lord. This was a far future day from their perspective, several hundred years uh, B.C. And on the day of the Lord, God would send his Savior, the Old Testament prophet said, and he would do a variety of things. He would atone for the sins of his people. He would atone for sin and take care of the sin problem. He would gather God's scattered people from afar. That's a theme you run into over and over again when you read the Old Testament prophetic books. God's people scattered would be gathered together again to live with God in the promised land. Thirdly, he would judge all evildoers. 
those who do not repent, those who insist on living apart from God, eventually their day would come, all evildoers will be dealt with, justice will prevail, and they will be taken out. And fourthly and finally, God would then establish or really reestablish the perfectly righteous world that he originally made in Genesis 1. It was broken by sin, but because God has now atoned for sin and judged sinners and evildoers, he can reestablish the perfect word of peace and harmony that we're all longing for. The Hebrew word for that is shalom. So that was the day of the Lord. Now, from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets, this all appeared to be roughly one kind of future event, as it were. They never specifically said it's going to take 24 hours for all this to happen or anything like that. But from their perspective, there was going to be this future time where God was going to kind of do all of this roughly at the, at the same time. That's how it looked from the perspective of the Old Testament. And so constantly people like Peter, now in the first century, are looking forward to God making good on his promise. God is going to bring about, Peter believes, with the arrival of Jesus, God is bringing about the day of the Lord, and all of this stuff is going to start to happen. All this stuff is going to start to happen. Now, from, as we mentioned, the perspective of the Old Testament prophets, this all looks like it's going to be one event, but as we get closer and closer in the New Testament, we actually start to see that while everything the Old Testament prophets said is true and is reaffirmed in the New Testament, we see that the picture they painted was completely true, but it was not complete, Actually, there is some separation between these events. And maybe the best illustration of this that, that I've heard and I can relate to, hopefully you can as well, that helps bring, I think, this point together very clearly is simply this. It's a perspective issue. For example, this backpacking trip I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. When we were driving to Wyoming, at one point we left uh, Jackson, Wyoming. We're headed north, and you're out on this plane. Some of you may have driven this highway before. It's 121 or something. I forget the number in Wyoming. But you're headed north, and you're on this just flat kind of pasture land plain. And over to the west, to your left, the Grand Teton Mountains just rocket up out of the plains. If you haven't been there and seen it yourself, I can almost guarantee you've probably seen it on a postcard or something. It is unbelievable. Thousands and thousands of feet, they just shoot up like almost sheer cliffs out of the plain, and they're these jagged mountains. And so for like almost an hour, I was glad I wasn't driving because I could just stare gaping out the window at these beautiful mountains. And one of the things that happens, and you've probably had an experience sort of like this if you're looking off in a distance, sometimes you'd be looking kind of up to the north or the northwest, you know, as you're kind of headed up that way, and you'd see like three mountains that were like one right after the other. They were like side by side. And you're like, wow, that's really pretty. And then as you get closer and closer, suddenly you realize, oh, wait a second. Those three mountains aren't side by side. The first one and the third one are side by side, and the middle one is like back behind them. There's a whole valley, it's, it's this huge gap of distance in between this peak. So what you thought was two-dimensional, actually you get more of a three-dimensional picture once you get a better angle on it and you get closer to it. And you realize that three mountains that looked side by side are actually somewhat separated when you get closer. They're all there, they're just organized a little different than you thought from a distance. Well, if you've ever had an experience like that, then you get some sense of how prophecy works in the Bible. From the perspective of the Old Testament, all four of these events, these Day of the Lord mountain peaks, if you will, looked like they were all smashed up together. But as we get into the New Testament and God starts this kingdom program by sending Jesus to do the first one to atone for sin, we start to realize that, oh, wait a minute, there's some separation here 
that wasn't visible from centuries and centuries ago. In fact, there's a gap. There is a huge valley of time between the first two bullets and the latter two bullets. From the, our perspective now, we understand that, and this is the teachings of the New Testament, the first bullet is done. It's done. The Old Testament prophet said, someday God's going to atone for sin. Well, it happened. He did it. Jesus came and he lived the perfectly righteous life for me and you that we should have lived but never can. And then he died the sinner's death for me and you that we should have died but we now no longer have to. And by means of his perfectly righteous life and his sacrificial death, we receive his righteousness. He takes on the penalty of our sin and sin is atoned for. And it's done. It's done. Just before Jesus died on the cross, his words, it's finished. It's completed atonement for sin has been made. So from our perspective, that one's in the rearview mirror. From their perspective, it was way in the future. From our perspective, that's 2,000 years in the past. Done, finished, check it off the list. Now, the ingathering of God's people, however, is something that started back in the first century, and it continues on to this very day. God's people being gathered from all tribes, tongues, and nations, all four corners of the earth, so to speak, as men and women the world over hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus by surrendering their lives to him and being adopted into his family. He is gathering his people still today. That's what he's doing. And we now await the future where God will bring about final judgment of those who will not repent and create the perfect world, sin-free, that we're all longing for. So that's how the kingdom program unfolds. Now, that's helpful to know just as somebody who wants to understand the Bible in the first place, but how does that help us with Mark chapter 8? Back to our argument with Jesus and Peter, okay? Peter's operating on this two-dimensional view. Jesus, you're supposed to come, and you're supposed to conquer Rome. That was the secular ruling authority at the time. You're supposed to establish perfect righteousness. Miraculously, somehow, Peter didn't know how that was going to happen, but he was confident it was all going to happen soon, like within his lifetime. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Peter's going, that is not part of the program. What are you talking about? Well, Jesus returns the favor. He, in turn, rebukes Peter. He sees the disciples, and he rebukes Peter in front of them to make his point. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Peter is seeking to dissuade Jesus from the hard pain of going to the cross, and Jesus recognizes in his words Satan's temptation. He says, no, I have to go. I have to go. Now, here's the real shocker. Now we get into the heart of the passage from verse 34 on. Not only does Jesus' road lead first through suffering, but so does the road of his followers. This is where it starts to get a little uncomfortable. After all, I'm very happy with the idea of a God who would suffer for me so that I don't have to. That sounds good. Sign me up. A God who would suffer for me so that I don't have to in order to earn my righteous way into heaven, but who then says, follow in my footsteps and suffer likewise. It's a little bit of a different deal, isn't it? But the second Jesus is the Jesus that the Bible presents. 
He says very clearly, verse 34, he calls to him the whole crowds, no longer just his disciples. He changes his tune even for the crowds because he's about to leave Galilee anyway. So all these people that have been following around publicly, he says on no uncertain terms, if anyone would come after me, be my follower, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the core verse. This is the main point of everything that Jesus is doing in this passage. Let him, if you want to follow me, you want to be my follower, you want to be a Christian, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. A brief word on each of those. Deny himself. Let him deny himself. Uh, contrary to how some people have interpreted this at different points throughout church history, this is not a general call to be an ascetic, you know, an asceticism. Basically, like, just sell all your possessions and go live as a pauper and make yourself uncomfortable and be miserable because that's somehow more holy than being comfortable. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What it means is my life isn't about me. It's about Jesus. That's what Jesus means when he says to deny yourself. Deny the self at the core of yourself. The part of you that you probably don't even think about most of the time, but you get up and you're living your life and you're doing what you think you want to do for you because that's how everybody functions when they're living for themselves. And he says, that's the part of you that you deny. My life isn't about me. It's not about the pursuit of my agenda. It is about Jesus and the pursuit of his agenda. What I want and my goals for me are then consciously made subservient to Jesus and what his goals are for me. I was bought with a price. The incomparable, incalculable price of the life of the Son of God himself. His life is worth way more than mine, but he gave his life in exchange for mine, so my life is no longer mine. It belongs to him. This is the basic mindset of every Christian. This is not something Jesus says that you eventually mature into someday. This is what it means to be my followers. I deny myself. My life isn't about me. Secondly, he says to take up a cross. To take up a cross, which is a very, very interesting thing for him to have said. It's very interesting. We're so used now to the idea of, of the cross being the symbol of Christianity, and we've got crosses outside our building hung up on the walls. We've got a cross hanging up here front and center on purpose to remind us that we're centered on the gospel. The cross is the symbol of Christianity. But at the time Jesus said this, as he was making it the symbol of Christianity, it wasn't yet. The cross was not a Jewish symbol at all, and he was speaking to predominantly Jewish people. So it was very weird, historically speaking, for him to make a big symbol and image out of a cross to a Jewish audience, because the cross meant nothing to Jewish people. It wasn't part of their history. It wasn't part of their religious practice. The cross was a Roman invention, and it was a pretty ugly Roman invention. You're probably familiar with the fact that it was essentially a torture device, the cross really imagery has, has two things associated with it. One is submission to authority and the other is punishment for sin. Submission to authority and punishment for sin. I think both are intended by Jesus when he says that we as Christians are to take up our cross and follow him. First of all, submission to authority. In the Roman context... Uh, crucifixion, death on a cross, was typically reserved for people who had committed excessively heinous crimes, uh, and especially the crime of, of treason or rebellion. 
those who were trying to overthrow Roman dominance. So it wasn't just any garden variety criminal that would be executed on a cross. This was reserved for people who had tried to overthrow uh, Roman imperial rule. And that's where this first picture and symbol comes in. It was common that uh, a criminal in such a case would be forced to carry one piece of their own cross to their place of execution. And Jesus was forced to do that as well during his uh, crucifixion. And, And why did they do that? Why did the Romans do that? Because it was a visible public symbol of who was in charge. Here's a guy who tried to start an insurrection. Here's a guy who tried to overthrow the authority of Rome, and Rome won. This guy is under the thumb of the Roman Empire. We are forcing him to carry the instrument of his own torture and his own death to the place where that torture and death will take place. It was a visible symbol that he is submitting and bowing the knee to Rome. And so it was a symbol of submission. Secondly, and maybe more obviously, the image of a Roman cross is one of pain and suffering inflicted by the state as punishment for rebelling against Rome's rule. Now, Jesus seizes on both of these images when he says, anyone who must come after me must take up a cross and follow me. Having denied myself, I'm no longer following my rules and following Jesus' rules. What are Jesus' rules? What's his goal for my life? Oh, he says, my goal for your life? Take up a cross. That means submission and punishment. In Jesus' case, he's using the submission as an image of, just like we said, denying ourselves and giving our lives in service to God. Just as Jesus bowed to the Father's will for him, which was to die on the cross, and he did that when he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, I got to go do what I got to do. But he did it even more vividly, and we'll see this later in Mark's gospel, in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died, when he even prayed to his father, and he said, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, if there's any way I don't have to die on that cross, please let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As Jesus submitted his life to the will of his Father, so he calls his followers to submit our whole lives to him for his purposes. That we live in service of the gospel, not for ourselves according to the ways of the world. What that means for each one of us as individuals, God himself only knows. But the common theme for disciples of Christ is we submit. And secondly, Jesus also intends the more obvious image of punishment and pain. Jesus makes it clear by using a Roman cross to this Jewish audience. Makes it plain. He makes it vivid. He almost couldn't have made it more plain. That following him means the follower too will be punished for abandoning the ways of the world and living for Jesus. Now there's an important distinction here. In the Roman case, the Roman cross and its punishment was punishment by the state for having rebelled. And Jesus is turning that analogy around a little bit. He's not saying that when you take up a cross, that's like God punishing you because you were a sinner. That's not what he's saying. Because the gospel tells us that God punished who? Say it loud, church. Who got punished? Jesus, absolutely. He got punished for my sins. So no, this is not the sense that God is going to punish me. Rather, Jesus says, people are going to punish you if you are my follower. Why? Because you refuse to bow your knee to the thing they bow their knee to, and instead you bow your knee to me. And that will be offensive, and a price will be extracted. 
my followers pay it. You see, bearing my cross uh, doesn't really refer to just kind of any general trial or difficulty that I may face. Although sometimes, even as Christians, we sort of talk casually about that. You know, something rough comes up or some difficult circumstance, and I say, well, you know, this is the cross I have to bear. And I think we should probably be a little more circumspect when we say that. That's coming out of passages like Mark chapter 8 here. But but bearing a cross for Jesus doesn't just mean any old garden variety difficult thing I go through. He's specifically talking about costs that I choose to pay by submitting my autonomy to Jesus as Lord. Costs that my culture, my society, maybe even my own family and friends will extract from me because I do not tow the party line that they follow. I follow a different morality. I follow a different purpose. I live for someone else. It would be wonderful to say, hey, people have freedom to choose to believe and live however they want. In our multicultural, pluralistic society, that is sort of our ideal, right? You can believe whatever you want to believe, create the identity you want to create, live however you want to live. It would, at some level, kind of be nice if that were actually true in practice. But of course it isn't, and it's becoming less so. Oh, friends, while we are a long ways away yet from facing actual threats to life and limbs simply because we're Christians, by the grace of God, we're nowhere near that in this country, the way that our brothers and sisters in Christ are in many other countries, from the Middle East to Africa to the uh, Southeast Asia. No, we're miles away from actual threats of bodily harm. However, unless you've been completely living in a cave for the last 20 years, you're probably already aware that the weather's changing. And I don't mean in the sky, I mean in the culture. We live in a society where a strong and increasing majority of our fellow citizens see even basic Bible teachings as offensive, as backward, as hateful, and bigoted, and spiteful. In short, we live in a country where an increasing majority of people truly believe in sincerity that even the most basic teachings of the Bible are reprehensible and should be punished. You're probably aware of this. I mean, you almost can't not be aware of it if you're paying attention. When thousands and thousands of people celebrate a florist in Washington State losing her business, or a bakery right here in the Portland metro area over in Gresham, a couple losing their business for simply refusing to provide positive celebration of the cultural innovation of gay marriage. You realize that the weather's changing in terms of the way that, that the Bible is being perceived. The case of the florist in Washington is very interesting. Uh, the two men in question who were getting legally married in the eyes of the state of Washington came and asked her to provide flowers for the wedding. She politely declined to do so, even though she had served them as customers for years and years and years and treated them with dignity and respect. Clearly, this was not a homophobic person. But she felt she could not in good conscience help celebrate their wedding because their wedding, although they now had the legal right to do it, violated scripture, so she didn't want to be drawn into it. Not only did she lose her business, but she was cheered, or the government action was cheered by many. Because what a hateful, spiteful, mean thing to do. People like that should lose their business, you see. 
These are values that now increasingly need to be punished. Now, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I have no crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now. But I'm smart enough, like most of you, to pay attention. And all the trend lines are pointing in one direction, culturally. They're pointing in one direction culturally. Now, that brings us back to why I said at the beginning, this is so important for us as Christians. Because the question is then, how do you respond? How do you respond? If you see those trend lines and you're a Christian, you say, boy, people are getting increasingly hostile to just my faith. And I may be forced to pay some kind of a serious price just for acknowledging basic Bible teachings that have been there for thousands of years. What do you do? Some Christians cower in fear. Some Christians get mad. We got to take back America. We got to fight. What do we do? Deny himself, take up your cross, and follow me. Follow me. That command of Jesus, follow me, is worded in such a way that it is clearly an ongoing choice. It's, it's not a one-time thing. I chose to follow Jesus when I prayed a prayer at 13 years old and got baptized. No, this is like every day are you going to continue to follow me, continue to take up that cross, continue to pay that price. Well, I'm an American. I got rights. I shouldn't have to pay a price. Says who? Jesus never said that. He said, follow me and pay it because that's what I'm doing. Living out the teachings of the Bible and submitting my life to the kingship of Jesus will increasingly result in some kind of a cost being extracted from me. Disciples of Jesus regularly choose to pay that cost just as he did. Now, so far, that sounds pretty morose, doesn't it? Pretty dark. It's actually really good news in this passage. Verses 35 and 36. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That sounds like an enigmatic statement. What does Jesus mean by that? What he basically means is simply this. Following me and paying whatever price is actually the smart move. You know why? Because what Jesus is telling us is simply this. We cannot find real life by making friends with the value system of a God-rejecting culture. We will never find life by making friends with the value system of a culture that doesn't make any pretense to follow God. Real life is not found in whether or not we're accepted or thought well of or treated fairly or justly. Real life is found in following the one who brings about real life, which is Christ alone, at the cross. Willingness to endure suffering, whatever form it takes for Christ now makes perfect sense, actually. It's the smart move because we know that that is the road to everlasting life. Sometimes we refer to this as living with an eternal perspective. It's a good phrase. Living with an eternal perspective. We know what the outcome is. That's where real life is found. Jesus is just reminding us that we live in a valley of time now before we get there, and the valley's kind of dark and miserable. But we know where the road leads. It leads to glory. But here's the thing. Pain precedes the power. That's what Peter wanted. Jesus, you can't die. You're supposed to conquer. He wanted to see Jesus as a conquering king. Jesus is like, yeah, I will someday, but not now. More on that in just a second. Now, pain precedes the power. Grief precedes the glory. Loss precedes life. This is the way of Jesus. And this is the way he calls all of his followers to walk in his footsteps. 
He endured his own suffering, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, for the joy set before him. When he was suffering on the cross, he was thinking about glory. I will get there. That's the model for us. Not making heaven right now, not a refusal to suffer now, not fighting, not being scared, but knowing the outcome and paying the price in faithfulness to our Savior. Jesus says it's the smart move in verses 36. What what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What could a man give in return for his life? Sometimes I call this the King Tut principle. That's just me. Don't quote me on that. That's King Tut, at the time when he was the pharaoh of Egypt, massive amounts of wealth, that's very well known. He was a guy who had experienced all the power a person could attain. He had it all in his day and age. And guess what? He still died. Pretty young, actually, from what I understand. He died. He is still dead. Despite all the Egyptian attempts to mummify him and make him live forever, it didn't work. He's every bit as dead as the poorest slave who labored underneath his rule. All that wealth and all that power did him nothing. It is merely the fodder now for museum exhibits and archaeologists and historians. So what does making friendship with the world get us? Jesus says nothing. Just think about it. How foolish to spend yourself on this life which is over like that. This life is like a dot. Eternity is like a line that extends for forever. He says live for the line, not the dot. It's the smart move. We know where this train is headed. In fact, Jesus wraps it up, well, at least wraps up this passage that we're looking at this morning with the promise that that second mountain range that the Old Testament prophets talked about is still coming. He first comes as the suffering servant, but he will one day return as the king and the judge. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, he says, remember, this is a world that isn't trying to follow me. They've turned their backs on God. And if that makes you ashamed of being my follower, he says, then I will be ashamed of them when I come in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. He makes it clear that the coming of the Messiah, previously thought to be a one-time event, is actually two. He comes first time as the suffering servant to atone for the sins of God's people and begin the ingathering of his scattered people. But he will return a second time, this time as the universe is king and judge, and he will condemn all unrepentant sinners to the eternity they have chosen for themselves. They've chosen to be apart from God, and he will come and say, fine, your will be done. And he will then establish the perfectly righteous world that we've all longed for. So much more to say about these things and about the cost of discipleship, but we're going to say them over the next couple weeks, and so we're going to stop there for this morning, and we'll pick this up in chapter 9 next week. Let me, let me try to bring this home a little bit on a personal level by picking up where I'd left off earlier. I started by saying it's my personal conviction that, uh, especially for the majority culture church in America, which we're a part of here, Our past has not prepared us for gospel faithfulness in our immediate future. Basically, you probably figured out what I mean by that now. Basically, I simply mean that in the past, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time and lived maybe for several decades in this country, you're a little bit more used to the broader culture basically agreeing with the Bible on most major moral issues, at least generally. 
I mean, stuff that the Bible would say is wrong, pretty much everybody in America would kind of go, yeah, that, that stuff's pretty bad. And stuff that the Bible says is right, people go, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's good. At the very least, we're used to being in a culture that gives the Bible at least a grudging respect for being the good book. But those days are fast, fast fading. In fact, guys, they're, they're pretty much already gone. They're pretty much already gone. And what that means for us is that we're going to need to reframe our expectations of what it means to be Christians that fit into the larger society around us. That's going to look and feel different than it's looked and felt in the past. We need to reframe our expectations of the kind of faithfulness that the gospel produces. And while our past has not prepared us for this future, Jesus does. That's what he's trying to do in this section of Mark's gospel. That's why we need his words so badly today. I think an effective church in the coming years that is going to be faithful to the gospel will need to have at least three things true of it. Probably more than this, but at least these three. First of all, it needs to be centered on the gospel. It needs to be centered on the gospel. Everything is about God's kingdom program as he revealed it here. This is not about a preacher building a platform for himself. It's not about a group of people trying to find a better life for themselves. This is about what God has said in his word he is doing in the world. And he sent his son to die and redeem people. That's what we're about. We live in the wilderness of ingathering. And it is about gathering God's people in through the living and the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus. So we need to stay centered on the gospel, not get distracted by overly detailed, hyped-up accounts of what may happen in future prophecy or fighting for this or that right. There's a time and a place to do that, but that's not our main mission. Our main mission is to be faithful to the gospel. Secondly, the church needs to be captivated by the beauty of Christ. Captivated by the beauty of Christ and what he has done in coming to this earth, dying for us and purchasing us with his own blood. Because you see, it's a captivated heart that keeps us on a gospel road. When I love and am in awe and enthralled with the most, that's the one thing I can't live without. That's true of everybody. And for me, as an individual Christian, if I'm most in love with and most enthralled with who Jesus is and what he did, then I am enthralled with one thing that can never be taken away from me. And that is the redemption I have in the cross of Christ and the future that that guarantees me. Nobody can take that away. And if that's the thing I love the most, then letting other stuff go isn't as big a deal. Doesn't mean it won't hurt, but it's not that big a deal because my heart doesn't treasure the things that my culture can take away from me. We need to be a people who are captivated by the beauty of Jesus. And lastly, we need to be a people who are committed to saying and living the truths of Jesus in all areas of life. Not, as some churches are doing, trying to focus on the select few that they think will be less controversial and trying to ignore the rest. We simply humbly and faithfully live the whole teachings of God. Come what may. We don't do it with an attitude of brashness. We don't do it as being jerks. We do it like our Savior did it. This is the truth. I'm walking in it, come what may. You can't take from me the only thing that's the most important. So have it in my flesh and take whatever pound you want. I'm for Jesus. At harvest, our heart, our desire is to be that kind of a church. Loving those who utterly disdain Jesus, the way that he loved them in his day, 
committed to the ingathering of God's people as their lives are changed by the gospel and ultimately captivated by the truth and the beauty of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the great news of the gospel is that Jesus has already triumphed over sin and rejection. That's in the past. He has not yet fully implemented it because he is waiting to judge people so that more people by his grace can repent and experience life. But the victory has been won. Consequently, he himself is the one who provides what we need to be faithful to the mission. That's what we're all about. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, I thank you for the truths that you've given us in Scripture, for the day and age in which you've placed us. These are great times to be alive. We have been blessed, those of us that especially have lived most of our lives or grown up in this country, blessed beyond measure in so many ways with freedoms, with material security and health and wealth, things that we do not deserve. We thank you for those. That is your goodness to us. And yet, Father, we do not want to become complacent. We want to be your people, just as so many of our brothers and sisters the world over, even today, are paying great prices to follow you. God, may we celebrate them, support them, advocate for them, and where you call us to, join them. As a people who are captivated by the truth and the beauty of the Christ, willing to be thought foolish, stupid, evil, bigoted, when we know that's not true. And we can't change everybody's mind but we can follow you. And I pray that that call would go out deeply into our hearts, that for men and women who did not follow you as Lord and Savior, they would see in you and in our love for you that you are worth living and dying for because you have the words of life and nobody else does. Make us a faithful people for your glory and our eternal good. We look forward to that day in Christ's name.